Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Jessica Bissett, and I'm the Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. For today's interview, we are joined by Ryan Haas. Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution to discuss Taiwan and China and what cross-strait relations mean for the United States. Ryan, let's jump right in. About an hour ago, Speaker Pelosi, along with other members of Congress, arrived in Taiwan. To better understand the implications of the Speaker's visit, let's look at some of the fundamental principles at the heart of the U.S.-China relationship as it relates to Taiwan. So first off, can you explain the difference between the One China Principle and the One China Policy? Well, first of all, Jessica, thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak with you and others. The, the One China Principle is China's definition. It is the benchmark that Beijing demands that all other countries around the world meet in order to have productive relations with China. The, the One China Principle is clean, concise, pithy. It has basically three elements. Uh, the first is that there's only one China in the world. The second is that Taiwan is a part of China. And the third is that the PRC is the sole legal government representing all of China. And so that's, that's the standard that they uh, expect and demand that all other parties meet in order to maintain relations with China. The United States does not have a one China principle, it has a one China policy. Uh, our one China policy is relatively more amorphous compared to uh, the, the simplicity of China's formulation, but it's really, it's a shorthand for a series of, of policies, laws, and agreements that combine together uh, to shape and inform uh, America's approach to prostrate issues. The United States usually refers to the One China Policy in accordance with the Taiwan Relations Act, the three U.S.-China joint communiques, and the six assurances that President Reagan uh, provided to Taiwan. And, and this combination is intended to signal a few you know, key principles. Uh, the first is that the United States has an abiding interest in upholding peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, we oppose either side unilaterally changing the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, and we do not support uh, de jure independence for Taiwan. Now, Beijing likes to hear certain elements of this. They like to hear our invocation of the three joint communiques and the fact that we don't support uh, Taiwan independence. At the same time, uh, our friends in Taiwan like us to, to hear us reaffirm the Taiwan Relations Act and the six assurances. And so the, the One China policy that the United States upholds is intended to provide a bit of a guidepost and sort of boundaries for what's inbounds and in, out of bounds for, for US actions as it relates to prostrate issues and to uh, provide a degree of consistency and, and discipline to the way that the United States approaches these, these sensitive matters uh, so that we can uphold peace and stability and, uh, and preserve space for people in Taiwan and the mainland over time uh, to resolve their differences. Thanks for that, Ryan. Um, moving on to another important foundational element of our policy, what is strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity when it comes to America's Taiwan policy? Well, strategic ambiguity, another way to think about it is dual deterrence, uh, because really what the, the approach of strategic ambiguity is intended to do is to block two pathways that could lead to conflict. Uh, the most salient pathway that could lead to conflict in the minds of many in the United States right now is if China were to initiate military action against Taiwan. Uh, 
The other pathway, which was uh, of concern just a decade ago, uh, was that Taiwan could take steps uh, in the direction of de jure independence that could precipitate a conflict uh, that the United States would not want, uh, but may be drawn into. And to, to deal with these, these two challenges, uh, as the thinking goes, it's best to preserve a certain degree of flexibility or ambiguity so that both sides are left guessing as to how the United States would react to events. And it causes both sides to operate with a degree of, of caution um, because of the uncertainty. Um, now, to, to strike this balance uh, requires a, a certain degree of, uh, of both reassurance and deterrence to both sides. Uh, for Beijing, uh, you know, the United States warns that we would oppose any use of force uh, by China against Taiwan without necessarily specifying how we would oppose uh, any Chinese use of force. But at the same time, we reassure Beijing that we do not support Taiwan independence. Conversely, for Taiwan, we warn against any actions that could provoke a conflict uh, that we would not like, uh, such as a declaration of independence. But we assure the the people of Taiwan that we will not sacrifice Taiwan's interests in service of closer relations with China. So the goal is to try to preserve a, a certain degree of equilibrium in the Taiwan Strait and avoid conflict and create space uh, for the two sides to resolve their differences peacefully over time. Now, there have been some arguments that as China's military strength has grown and its uh, strategic appetite has grown larger, that the United States needs to shift from a policy of strategic ambiguity to one of strategic clarity. The idea of strategic clarity is that uh, the United States would declare without an ounce of ambiguity that it would respond militarily uh, to any PRC invasion of Taiwan for purposes of deterring China from ever contemplating uh, going down that path. Um, the, thus far, the, the Biden administration has preserved uh, an approach of strategic ambiguity. This is the same rough posture that every administration since 1979 has upheld. Uh, but we'll have to, to watch this closely to see if, if that same logic uh, continues to guide America's approach going forward. Thanks, Ryan. Um, why do you think China is reacting so strongly to Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? I mean, this isn't the first time that members of the House or Senate have traveled to Taiwan before. Um, what makes this trip different? Well, I think that Beijing sees the speaker's visit is part of an ongoing effort by the United States to hollow out its commitments uh, that it made when it established diplomatic relations with China. Uh, one of the, the principal commitments was that the United States would maintain unofficial relations uh, with the people of Taiwan and official relations uh, with the mainland. Part of the nature of unofficiality is that senior most leaders do not visit each other's countries. The, the last time that a Taiwan leader visited the United States was 1995. Uh, it was Taiwan's president, Li Donghui, who traveled to his alma mater to deliver an address. That was the, the context for the third uh, cross-strait crisis uh, at that time. The, the last time that a American official of the stature of Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan was 1997. Uh, it was Newt Gingrich. Uh, Speaker Gingrich traveled to Beijing first, spent several days in Beijing, uh, demonstrated his respect for, for China and his awareness of Chinese sensitivities before traveling onward to Taiwan for, for several hours. Uh, so I, I think that the, the Chinese reject the idea that there's some type of uh, analogy between uh, Speaker Gingrich and Speaker Pelosi's trip because the context uh, of those two trips was, was quite different. I think that, that Beijing also worries that uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit will attract copycats uh, 
uh, other leaders from around the world watching uh, the speaker travel to Taiwan, be warmly welcomed by the people of Taiwan and their leaders and decide, you know what, maybe, maybe I should as well. And they, they would like to preempt and, and forestall that. Um, but at a, at a more conceptual level, we can hear Chinese spokespeople and Chinese official media talking about how the speaker's trip is part of a broader plan uh, by the United States to use what they call the Taiwan card, uh, to split China, to undermine China, uh, and, and to challenge um, China's position and moral standing uh, in the inter international system. They, they argue that the reason why the United States cares so much and prioritizes so often issues like Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and Taiwan is because they, they want to undermine, divide, and weaken China. And the speaker's trip is just the latest of, of a longstanding effort along these lines. Lastly, I, I would just suggest, Jessica, that I think that Beijing hates the timing of this visit. It's adjacent to PLA Day, the, the anniversary of the founding of uh, China's military. It occurs simultaneous to a period when uh, China's military is at its highest tempo annually for its military exercises. It's around the same time as the leadership retreat in Beidaihe, where China's former and current leaders uh, typically meet to talk about uh, the future direction of the country. And it's in the run-up to China's party congress, where they will decide upon their, their slate of leaders for the next five years this fall. And so uh, in that context, I think that President Xi is, is very committed to preserving his brand of being tough, resolute, and standing firm in the face of American pressure. And he's not going to want to uh, open up space for criticism about uh, being weak in the face of what they perceive to be a provocation. The final detail, uh, Beijing really doesn't like the speaker. Uh, she has a long storied record of uh, standing firm in the face of Chinese pressure and calling out um, what she believes are Chinese transgressions. Uh, one of her first major uh, actions uh, in Congress was around the time of the Tiananmen massacre. She was very outspoken and supportive uh, of those that were suffering and, uh, and worked very hard to find a pathway for um, dissidents and others to, to come to the United States. She famously unfurled a banner uh, several years later in Tiananmen Square. In the intervening years, she's been an outspoken advocate for Tibet and has met often with, with the Dalai Lama. And, and so there's an accumulated feeling uh, that, uh, that Speaker Pelosi is up to no good uh, by those in Beijing and, and that they feel like they need to, to react strongly. So if you add all of that up, uh, I think that it's safe to expect that there will be a pretty robust response uh, by Beijing to the Speaker's visit that will carry out uh, over the course of days and weeks to come. Well, keeping all that in mind, um, I'm kind of afraid to ask, but I must, since this is the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, what does this all mean for the bilateral relationship moving forward? Well, I think that, that the, the visit of the speaker is going to add a certain degree of stress uh, to the relationship between the United States and China. Um, but there are some important signposts that we should watch for to get a sense of, of how significant of an effect it will have. Um, the, the first will be whether uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, will be able to meet with his Chinese counterpart on the margins of the ASEAN Regional Forum in Cambodia this weekend. And then a, uh, in November, it will be important to watch whether President Biden and President Xi will have an opportunity to meet face-to-face, -face, uh, as they indicated that they intended to when they spoke by phone last week, uh, either on the margins of the G20 meeting in Indonesia or the APEC leaders meeting in Thailand. If the two leaders are able to meet face-to-face, -face, I, I think that we can expect that uh, they're both committed to keeping their hands on the steering wheel of the relationship and not allowing it to veer uh, into the ditch. And in the intervening period, we'll have to watch to see whether Washington and Beijing remain capable of direct 
private candid communication with each other so that they can clarify each other's intentions and, and shrink space from miscalculation. So I think those are a few of the signposts that we should watch for in the coming months to get a, a sense of the trajectory of the US-China relationship. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us today. I'd also like to thank the National Committee staff members behind the scenes who have made today's interview possible. We hope you found the interview interesting and informative and that you will join us for future National Committee programming. Thanks again and bye-bye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.